1: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to New Books and Gender. My name is Chelsea Gibson, and I'm a new podcast host here. I'm delighted today to interview Jennifer Helgren, who is an associate professor in the Department of History at the University of the Pacific in Stockton, California. Today, we'll be discussing her new book, American Girls and Global Responsibility, a new relation to the world during the early Cold War, published in 2017 by Rutgers University Press. She's also co-edited Co edited Girlhood, A Global History, which was also published by Rutgers in 2010. Welcome to the podcast, Jennifer. Thank you, Chelsea. So, as we began, I was hoping that you could speak a little bit about your background and what inspired you to write this particular book. I saw in the acknowledgments, for example, that your mother was a Girl Scout and that you were a member of the Campfire Girls. How did that shape your interest in girls' history and did it actually contribute to your desire to write this book?
0: Thank you for that question. I earned my Ph.D. in women's history at Claremont Graduate University, and initially I had no idea that I was going to be writing about girlhood um, or youth organizations, Um, but as I thought about my dissertation, I remember sitting there one night looking through the campfire guidebooks and handbooks from my own childhood and reading how one of the men was the, um, one, one of the Males was the founder of the organization, but they had all these pictures of his wife. And I kept thinking, you know, where are the women here? What were the women's roles um, in connection to the development of youth organizations? And so that was my initial interest in graduate school as I wrote my dissertation on specifically the the Campfire Girls. I um, did not turn my dissertation into a book at the time. Um, Partly this was due to little interest in youth organizations and children's history, uh, right when I was finishing up my dissertation. And so the book that we're going to be talking about today, American Girls and Global Responsibility is much broader than the Campfire Girls. But to get back to your main question, I do think that we all have personal interests that lead us in our inquiries and our studies. And so as a, as a child in the Campfire Girls, I remember having sort of ambivalent feelings about being in the organization. I loved it because it was my main social group, but I also chafed at a lot of the program activities and sort of the regulations. And so that's part of what I've tried to explore in my research and scholarship as well. All right. Thank you. That's very interesting. I'm very excited to talk about
1: these because I was actually a Girl Scout myself. And some of these things kind of resonated when I was reading it. So could you, as we get started briefly, maybe explain the history of the Girl Scouts, maybe the, uh, the history of the Girl Scouts, Campfire Girls, and the YWCA, which is your, they're your main kind of focus
0: in the book. I was wondering if you could set up their background. Um, absolutely. So youth organizations really get their start in the U.S. in the very beginning of the 20th century. The YWCA predates that a little bit, but their interest in youth programming really doesn't take off until the early um, 1910s and 1920s. And so what ends up happening is Robert Baden-Powell um, starts the Boy Scouts in England and um uh, the girl guides are started shortly thereafter, also in England and the movement spreads throughout the world. And of course to the United States in the United States, there are two different girls organizations that develop and in both the U S and in England, part of the reason that girls groups develop is because girls start showing up to the boy scout events and the boy scout leaders are like, what are these girls doing here? Um, And a lot of them just include the girls. The girls participate right alongside the boys. But there's an increasing call that there has to be some kind of different organization for girls. So that happens. The Girl Guides develops in England. And then in the U.S., the Boy Scouts of America develops. Girls start clamoring for their own organizations. And there are two that develop. Juliet Gordon Lowe famously develops the Girl Scouts. Uh, She had been friends with Robert Baden-Powell, and so she used the Scouts as the model. Um, In a lot of ways, she simply adapted the boys' program for girls. The Boy Scouts of America founders, particularly James West and Luther Gulick, looked at what the Girl Scouts were doing and what the Boy Scouts were doing, And they said, no, we need something that is distinctly feminine. And so they came up with the Campfire Girls to be a feminine corollary to the Boy Scouts. And they spent quite a bit more time and energy trying to think about specifically what a girls program should be. And so a lot of my interest in the Campfire Girls um, which actually was the more popular organization in the U.S. until the 1930s when Girl Scouts surpassed it. And for many of my students, they've never even heard of the Campfire Girls by by this point. Um, so in 1910s, um, the GULICs, along with um, a whole host of progressive educators, came up with a program that they thought emphasized uh, femininity, Um, preparation, citizenship training for a modern, up-to-date, but also traditional womanhood. So they've got one foot squarely planted in the 19th century sort of traditional domestic roles, um, but with this notion that the urban, industrial, bureaucratic, scientific modern world needed something um, new for for girls as well. And so Campfire tried to do both of those things. Whereas I think Juliet Gordon Lowe was much more interested in creating an adventure program that was fun for girls um, and that would help them grow up into being responsible uh, citizens, but with much less attention on the strict gender binary, the way the, girls, uh, the, way the campfire girls um, were, were interested in doing.
2: Yeah, so I should also say,
0: yeah, I should also say yeah. that, that this comes out of a time period in, in the U.S. and in England where gender roles were really being transformed. Um, the suffrage movement is just one aspect of that. But women's roles were really changing and, and challenging the dynamic within families um, at the same time that youth were spending more and more time in public spaces, public schools. And so these youth organizations were sort of a bridge between the public um sphere and the private sphere. um, An option um, that was different from schools, but would bring kids out of their families, uh, but not fully institutionalize them in in public spaces the way that the schools were perceived as doing. And how do you think that these groups, like you just
1: spoke a little bit to it, but how do you think that they were different than the way that the Boy Scouts were originally created? If that makes sense.
0: Well, the Campfire Girls were founded by really the same group that mm-hmm. that establishes the Boy Scouts of America, and then the Girl Guides internationally is founded by the same group that uh, starts the Boy Scouts in England and then becomes this international phenomenon. So, I think the the the, the differences that we see between the boys and the and the girls' organizations has to do with the gendered citizenship. Um, and, and this is another one of the ideas that runs throughout my work and so much of children's history today. I mean, you can look at um, Christine Alexander's Guiding Modern Girls if you get a chance to review that one as well. It's a really great one. Um, and Misha Honick's book on the Boy Scouts um, Our Frontier is the World a lot of these books, what they're looking at is how gender and age, um, come together to formulate notions of citizenship. Um, in other words, we, we know quite well that, um, gender is a social construct and that men and women are supposed to have different roles in terms of citizenship duties. Um, but we're only beginning to look at, and I think youth organizations are crucial here. Um, we're only beginning to look at how, um, Age is also a component of citizenship. These are kids who are understood to be citizens, but they're in this developmental kind of citizenship um, that has often led scholars to talk about youth organizations as if they're only thinking about kids in the future, like training men and women. Um, but in fact, if you look at the um, the documents, the literature coming out of these organizations, there is an understanding um, and Susan Miller uses this term in her book on uh, youth organizations at the early 20th century. She calls them citizens in the now. Um, so there's this understanding by youth organizations that youth have a role as um, citizens in the moment, not just um, some conception of future citizens. So I think it's another way of looking at intersectionality. Um, it, it's not... Uh, necessarily more important than looking at other aspects like race and class. And ideally, all of that um, is analyzed. Um, But I think it is um, especially important to look at the way that gender and age come together in our concepts of um, human experience. So could you talk a little bit about how this confluence of gender and age
1: combined with the new kind of post-war context and how an atomic age created new expectations of children's citizenship, both maybe nationally and internationally.
0: Absolutely. So much of what we talked about so far is the background of youth organizations. And much of it I'll be talking about um, in the book. I'm actually returning to my original dissertation work. So I'm working on a book specifically on the Campfire Girls But American Girls and Global Responsibilities' uh, main thesis is that a new internationalist citizenship developed um, in American youth cultures after World War II. And um, you asked also, is this international? It is part of an international phenomenon. It's an understanding of the global interconnectedness of, um, of peoples And while that was present in the interwar period as well, what's new is the ability of young people and ordinary citizens, uh, particularly in Western democracies, um, to interact with one another. So we see, for example, that the number of Girl Scouts um, on foreign soil, these are American troops, on foreign soil. They grow tenfold in the decade following World War II. And so these are American girls. They tend to be the daughters of uh, American businessmen abroad, uh, military men abroad, uh, even charitable organizations, um, NGOs abroad. Uh, What that means is that there are more and more Americans living and working abroad. So that increases the, the chances of this internationalist Citizenship growing and taking place. You also have the ability of reporters from all kinds of levels of magazines, being able to fly abroad, see places. Um, So there's a greater uh, ability of ordinary Americans to participate in a kind of internationalist ethic through tourism. Um, Obviously, the American economy in the 1950s. And the rise of the U.S. as a superpower also enables American girls to participate in this kind of internationalist culture to an extent that um, many girls in other countries won't have until really the the 1960s and 1970s. So so that's an important uh, component uh, to the the internationalist citizenship. But in addition to the resources, there's this aspirational... um, ideal that girls organizations get to embody, um, because of a traditional association of women with nurture and peacemaking, um, that girls organizations become a place where aspirational ideals, many of them found in the United Nations documents, um, they, they find a voice there. They find a, um, a place of articulation. And what surprised me in doing my, my research, one of the reasons that I wanted to study this more, um, was I was shocked by how open the youth organizations were, particularly the girls' organizations, with these internationalist ideas in a time period where anti-communists saw the United Nations um civil rights as um as 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 a threat to American democracy. Um and so these girls organizations especially showed me that a lot of these ideals were a lot more mainstream um than we have traditionally given them credit for. Um, so along these lines, we often look at youth culture as becoming international with the Peace Corps and with John F. Kennedy's call for uh, American citizens to, uh, you know, work for your country. Um, but as I was looking through just this mainstream literature from Girl Scouts and Campfire Girls and the YWCA, I was really struck by how much earlier girls organizations were, uh, were doing that. Um, and I don't make any claims that they're radical. I don't think they are at all. But what I think we're seeing, although the YWCA is in, in certain instances, um, but I think what we're seeing is the mainstream acceptance of these ideals before um, the extremes of Mark McCarthyism sort of shut off some of these possibilities for uh, mainstream political thought in, in the 1950s.
1: Yeah, one of the things I, I found really interesting about the book was that you talked about this moment of experimentation that was opened up kind of out of a necessity, out of a, out of great fear following the conclusion of the Second World War and the, the assumption of, of atomic power on the part of the United States. And one of the things that surprised me, too, was in your first chapter how you talked about the way that people believe that you could arm these children with education about the atomic bomb. And so they're talking about this atomic energy and the threat of nuclear war in very stark terms um, in ways that are trying to prepare these children for a new global citizenship in the age of the nuclear bomb. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how girls were supposed to help
0: a world now threatened by nuclear war power. Right. And this is one of the things that also surprised me in addition to the prevalence of this kind of aspirational one world international cooperation um, uh, discourse that comes that's tied to the United Nations was the open and often scary way that institutions like 17 magazine talked about um, the atomic bomb. And so here I will, uh, let me just share one of the quotes from the, the book. This is from a girl. She writes to 17 magazine and she says, um, everyone talks about another war. They talk about an atom bomb with all kinds of bacteria in it. And then she goes on, think of all the suffering and disaster that we could prevent by spreading tolerance and brotherly love. I'm willing to do all I can to help. I'm sure many of my fellow teenagers are. Couldn't we get some sort of national organization started in our schools to preserve peace? And so this is the late 1940s that she's writing. And I think what it shows is that many adults in youth organizations and in youth culture. 17s interesting too. There's a lot of new research coming out on 17 as as well. It was a service magazine in its earliest years before it was sort of taken over by fashion and lipstick and boys and dating. There was kind of an equal attention to issues of citizenship and how to be uh, a wholesome, uh, uh, civic-minded teenager. And so what youth leaders and Seventeen Magazine were doing was sort of acknowledging that kids are exposed to these ideas. They, They know that they're living in an extraordinary time. They're faced with all of these fears. And so youth leaders sought to meet youth and give them the tools that they needed to confront their era. They also imagined youth, and then youth go on to adopt this identity, really, that they are a distinct generation, different from anyone that has come before, because they will as adults, hold the fate of humanity in their hands in in ways that no previous generation, honestly, um, had ever had. And so as part of that, the youth organizations imagine boys and girls differently. They imagine boys as, um, you know, future military leaders. They're going to be the protectors of the nation. Um, Girls, they start to imagine in terms of their relational role. Girls will enact civil defense first, by preventing war, by cultivating international friendships, by cultivating international relationships. Girls, through this relational work, are expected to, um, they're really expected to promote a a kind of international cooperation um, and, and, and peace. And again, I think that a lot of this is aspirational. It doesn't mean that youth leaders um, believe that their organizations could do all of this. But it's sort of like the Declaration of Independence. It's sort of like the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights, where you hold out the highest aspirations of what you might be able to do as an organization. Um, and then that gets exhibited in the, the literature. And many of the girls do seem to adopt this identity. Girls who win awards from Campfire, from Girl Scouts. Girls who win essay contests in Seventeen magazine—they—they um, they embody, or their their words embody this same message. Um, and I want to be careful there too, because there's always this problem with sources. What we actually get as historians uh, passed down from girls is often, you know, it's, it's mediated what 17 magazine decides to print or what the American girl, the Girl Scout magazine decides to print is of course uh, selected by the adult leaders. So when 17 magazine prints this quote about a girl who's worried about bacteria and thinking about future organizations that she might start in order to protect herself and her nation, you know, I'm very much aware that the the magazine editors are selecting that as uh, a prescriptive quote to try to get other girls thinking along these same lines. Um, and in fact, in this case, the editor's response is to point to an article in the magazine about the United Nations youth. So these are mediated, um, but at the same time, they do also represent um, authentic viewpoints from at least uh, some girls. Um, The one that I found most often was this sense that they were a unique generation, that they were facing sort of unique circumstances with regards to the atomic bomb um, and also with civil rights. They felt that they were at the cutting edge of um, of really a new age. The sources were actually one of the things that I was most
1: interested in, because as you just uh, acknowledged, it's can be very difficult to actually get at children's voices because of this filtering. Um, and so one of my questions maybe before we dive even deeper into the content of the book is just maybe if you could discuss a couple of the sources that you used, we are already talking about 17 magazine, but I'm wondering what else you were able to gather and maybe how you dealt with some of these questions of reception and filtering. I'm particularly interested because I know you did oral interviews for this project and I was wondering what you felt like they contributed to your, um, understanding of how girls perceive themselves in this period.
0: Right. Um, good question. So the easiest sources obviously to come by are the ones produced by the youth organizations. But of course, those are the ones where girls' voices are most mediated. Uh, so it's easiest to get obviously the adults' perspective on what youth should be like. I've always tried whenever possible to to add in girls' voices um, and and like I mentioned, they're they're often mediated. So oral history is one way that we can go to get a less mediated, in some ways, uh, voice from. Um, the individuals who experience this history themselves, but it's mediated in different ways, right? It's mediated by their understanding now as um uh, sixteen seventy year old women looking back on their experiences. It's not that they don't remember correctly i'm um, I'm in most cases, I believe that when people are talking in oral histories. They their their outlines of their memories are are correct, but what they're doing is that they're putting those uh, memories in the in the narrative of their life as they see it now in their sixties and seventies. So you 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 get some very candid responses. I I interviewed one woman. She talked about a pen pal that she had had um, in Turkey. And she said, you know, it just really wasn't that important to me at all. And so she didn't really remember much about it. And so that's kind of telling, too. It gives us a counter perspective where the organizations are saying, this is such an informative, important experience to write to children abroad. Um, And she's like, no, it didn't really make much difference to me. But yet she saw herself as a very internationally aware and interconnected person. And she talked later about a um, foreign exchange student that her parents had hosted, Um, I think it was from Thailand. Um, And so that was a much more important experience for her. So the things that historians are trying to um, uncover about the past aren't always the things that come out of the oral history interviews as the, and and I think that gives us a lot of insights. Um, The literature, Argues that pen pals are crucial, and here's a scroll saying, Yeah, not so much. Um, other oral history interviews um, also gave a lot more insight, and, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about this in the, the Campfire book, into sort of the limitations of um, anti prejudice training in terms of the resources that different clubs and different councils had. So, again, there's this aspirational. Understanding that I talk about in American Girls and Global Responsibility that being a true internationalist means you deal with racism and discrimination at home, too. And so in the 1950s, the YWCA, Girl Scouts, Campfire Girls all develop anti racist policies and they start to implement them, but they don't have the resources to. Provide uniforms, for example. Um, They don't have always the resources to battle um, de facto segregation. And so there are a lot of problems that continue. Um, It's a little bit different, though. Boy Scouts, here's an example, is a little bit different. They leave it up to local councils whether they're going to desegregate. And the girls' organizations don't do this. The girls' organizations say that they're inclusive. However, they're still structured around the school or the church. That's where kids join. And so they're de facto segregated much longer than they are, um, um, you know, by policy um, segregated or or, or, um, experiencing integration. Um, So that's something that comes out in the oral history interviews as well. That's been pretty interesting. Um, The other problem or opportunity is with the girl's own letters. And this was a real challenge for me. I have one chapter that focuses on pen pal letters, uh, but I had a real difficulty trying to find actual pen pal letters. This is part of the ephemera of childhood and people don't save these things. And so I um, was not able to find the amount of pen pal letters Um, particularly two-sided that I would have liked to have had. I met all kinds of people who said, oh, yeah, I wrote two pen pound. Do you save them? No. (laughs) Um, And um, by chance, I happened to find, um, it it was a friend of of, uh, my mother-in-law, who was uh, raised in Vienna, was in Vienna after... World War II, and she wrote to an American girl, and she saved all of the American girl's letters, and so that makes a a really wonderful uh, body of source material. The American girl, however, um, wasn't able to save the letters of the Austrian girl, so it's a one-sided correspondence, and you sort of try to figure out what the relationship was like. It's kind of a nice story because the two of them reconnected actually because I was interviewing both of them um, and they met up again just a few years ago, which is kind of a nice uh, story. But in terms of sources, they're very, very rich in terms of actually getting girls' voices that aren't mediated by um, too much adult observation, Um, but they tend to be one-sided. And then there was another set of pen pal letters written by an LGBT activist, um, but she wouldn't let me quote her um, without it being part of her larger biography because it really showed a undeveloped kind of adolescent response to uh, racial issues in the U S that, that wasn't favorable. And while she was um, willing to allow someone to analyze those experiences in terms of a changing life she didn't want it extracted out of context which i totally understand um but this is one of the challenges of writing children's history Um, it's very hard to get things that aren't mediated and even these pen pal letters where the girls were writing back and forth to one another um they always had the threat that their parents would read them um and this was very common um That you would get a pen pal letter and you would share it with your family um, or you would share it with your Girl Scout troop um, to help them also to help your friends also learn about um, the the culture abroad. Um, So, yeah, sources are are really a a challenge um, for studying all kinds of history. We know all history is mediated, but I think children's history really brings that into sharp relief.
2: slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: And I'm so curious too, just as a historian, to my initial one of my questions was how you even began to find these women and how you even began to find these letters. And I love the fact that the this letter, because the girls you're talking about, one of them was a Jewish American, if I remember correctly, and the other one, her father had been a Nazi soldier. And so it's incredible that they connected. And um, how else did you go about finding people to interview? Did you just have a network that you were able to draw on? Or was it something that you had to go out and put a call out on the internet? Like, could you walk us through
0: that a little bit? (laughs) Yeah, the calls on the internet went nowhere. I tried that. (laughs) I tried a pen pal Facebook group and just got nothing. I tried. uh, Yeah. So that it it, it had to work within my networks. And so as I mentioned, my mother-in-law was Viennese. And so she reached out to her, um, uh, childhood friends and just happened to know this woman who had saved all of her letters. And she very generously shared them with me. Most of the women that I interviewed, however, did the oral histories of, um, were part of the campfire network. So they were women who, um, um, I found through the campfire message boards. Um, and then once it, it's what do the sociologists call this, the snowball research, I think that's the semi-technical term. Like once you find one, um, she shares all of these other connections with you. And so I think I interviewed, um, about half of a campfire group, uh, that had been in Bakersfield, California in the the 1950s for example. Um so being a campfire girl myself, I have to say also opened up avenues. Um people wanted to share their stories knowing not only that I was a historian trying to write a uh a book about the organization but also that I was a, a campfire girl and so um we would share stories as well. And I think that's an important part of the the process um, that we need to be aware of um, in, in getting sources who you are um, does impact uh, people's willingness to, to talk um, people's willingness to, to share with you um, Regardless of whether or not they believe you should write an objective or a celebratory history the, these women weren't terribly interested in that but but they were interested in meeting me um, because we had this this thing in common
1: right well that's i mean i I think yeah the personal personal interaction can be such an important thing to getting good history absolutely um so one of my questions to kind of get back into the content of the book is. You mentioned at the beginning of the interview that you were really surprised to see so many open endorsements of the UN and of these organizations, um, and that you kind of came to understand them as mainstream. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why girls' organizations in particular were drawn towards the UN and UNICEF and, and like these girls were memorizing and, and being quizzed on the UN's Declaration of Human Rights. And I'm wondering if you could just speak a little bit about how girls' internationalism came to be. And I think boys just didn't have the same type of influence. And I was wondering if you could explain the kind of gendered mechanics that are
0: at play there. Absolutely. So as I mentioned, this new internationalist citizenship is a key argument of the book. But the other aspect is this gendered aspect and that girlhood, much more than boyhood, allowed for the articulation of these aspirational ideals and the connections to the UN and the anti-racism that I um, mentioned is going on in the 1950s with Campfire and, and Girl Scouts. Um, and I find that it 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 Uh, comes out of traditional forms of female activism. Um, Think of the progressive era with its maternal feminism, um, that women argued that as mothers, as nurturers, they needed new roles in uh, civic uh, space. So a lot of women argued they needed the vote, not because they were equal and same as men, but because they um, were different from men. Um, a lot of others argued that as politics infringed on the home, they needed a space in um, politics to continue to shape the home. Um, and so in terms of the Cold War, um, I was also really influenced by Amy Swerdlow's work on Women's Strike for Peace. And so it's the, it's the same model where women um, identify with traditional roles in order to broaden their opportunities Um, to speak out, and in this case, Women's Strike for Peace, for quite radical uh, political reasons. Um, But they undertook Women's Strike for Peace as mothers who were worried about Strontium 90 showing up in the milk of their their children, and they used that for a platform for much broader, a radical challenge of uh, militarism, of course. So it grows in part from this tradition of female activism. But for girls also, girls aren't really seen as mothers. Girls are certainly seen by youth leaders as girls. And so friendship and building relationships, the building relationships is um, consistent with the maternalism model. Um, but for girls organizations, they're focusing on this friendship and, and, and building relationships, um, and so the, the girl's primary um, route to service and citizenship is through her efforts to build relationships, um, to nurture others. And so the prime ways that girls act as peace um, ambassadors or global ambassadors is by writing these pen pal letters and by sending care packages abroad. And boys do this, too. Um, and I mentioned Misha Honick's book earlier, um, on the Boy Scouts. Um, and he describes quite a bit of this, uh, Boy Scout activism, but in my own research, I find that the mentions of the, um, relationships abroad, um, come much less often in the boys material, the efforts from national Boy Scouts to celebrate the United Nations, are minimized to say the least. And, um, you also get these other strange sort of militaristic ideas infringing on the boys efforts to, uh, create relationships abroad. So for example, in, in one fundraising activity that Boy Scouts did, they collected, um, what did they call them? Intercontinental Brotherhood Missiles. Yeah, I love To that. talk about <laughs> letters, right? Letters is the missile instead of a missile. Um, and so just this urge to kind of put these militaristic metaphors onto the nurturing relationships they're trying to build, um, I, I find a I find that current running through much of the, the Boy Scout literature. Um, and so I think because... Um, American leaders and and here I'm being very uh, vague because I I do mean education leaders, political leaders, all kinds, um, they, they saw boys' relation to the nation state and as future protectors of that nation state as so crucial that boys really didn't have the leeway in their organizations to explore this kind of aspirational interconnectedness that the United Nations represented to the degree that girls' organizations did. And so to some extent, I think girls' organizations did fly under the radar. Campfire, I know, did. Um, And then Girl Scouts, not until 1953, 1954, um, do they start to court the disfavor of these virulent anti-communists. But even then, the anti-communists accused Girl Scouts of being duped you know, not actually being communist, but allowing your platform to be taken over by these um, communist sentiments. In other words, they're saying that you women and girls aren't actually smart enough to have this as your own radical platform, but you've been duped and and co-opted because you're do-gooders and you want to serve. And look, now you've been taken advantage of. Um, So, you know, that, that becomes a problem for the organization. But in the late 40s and early 50s, um, and once McCarthyism subsides a little bit, um, the Girl Scouts uh, do have more leeway to promote um, um, these these global um, partnerships, these global relationships.
1: One of the things I, I thought, thought was really interesting, too, is I saw a lot of connections to kind of the Internationalist sentiment that followed the First World War and the international sentiment that followed the Second, and the fact that conservative women's groups in the first Red Scare very much helped to kind of um, attack the internationalist sympathies of a lot of progressive women. And I found it really interesting that kind of the same thing was at play in your final chapter. You bring up Phyllis Schlafly a number number of times and how she, I believe, was part of the YWCA and she kind of helped attack it from within. And, And so I was wondering if you could explain how gender played into the ideas of um, or the kind of the denouncement of these girls groups as communist. And if you could spell it out for our listeners, like why were they even considered
0: communist in the first place? Okay. Yeah. Good question. So, and, and there's a lot of layers here too. So Phyllis Schlafly, uh, in 1952 she was a member of the YWCA and um, she had tried the year before to actually get a loyalty oath as part of membership in YWCA and they had rejected her efforts. Um, A couple locals picked up loyalty oaths, but for the most part, why women were not interested in in this. And so she began in 1952, um, an attack from the inside and you, to her credit, she did, she didn't do this publicly. The 15-page letter that she wrote talking about all the ways that the YWCA was um, infiltrated by communists was an internal document, Um, but it was consistent with her later politics um, and really did begin to raise her her stature. And what Schlafly was talking about with regard to the YWCA were really... um, accusations that dated back to the interwar period. And so you see this with a lot of the McCarthy um, era witch hunts, is that they really rehashed earlier accusations. And so, for example, the um, the uh, woman who was in charge of the women's press, the YWCA uh, publication department, had been accused um, in the interwar period of being, um, part of the, uh, the front groups, um, supporting the, uh, that, that worked along with the, the communist party. Um, and there were Y, um, uh, branches that had worked alongside, um, communist party rep- representatives, um, on different kinds of problems, particularly in the labor organization and the industrial organization of the the y w c a so a lot of this was just rehashing of of old um ties and so um in in terms of of the 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 gender dynamics, i mean one of the things that happens is that women who are on the new left are um accused of communist uh influence um, and then their voices are delegitimized and um, we end up losing um, nearly a a generation's worth of um, women's voices on the left because they've simply been dismissed. Um, And and so that process um, you see being repeated um, in the post-World War II period um, and in terms of the the, the Girl Scouts, um, they didn't have any interwar period accusations, so there, there wasn't any rehashing of the of of earlier um, crises. But what you had instead was a number of, um, and in this case, it was it was men um, on the the far right, men who were already critiquing educational institutions. Um, for being infiltrated by um all kinds of subversive f- forces, but you know communism was the the the, the popular one to blame in the nineteen forties and nineteen fifties um and in they were arguing that you know American schools were turning out a generation of children that weren 't patriotic um and um, unicef in particular was a a target. Uh, for its efforts in teaching children about international cooperation, um, its anti-racism efforts and, and so on. And so there were, um, sort of two moments for the Girl Scouts where, that, that came together and, and, um, created a crisis for them, um, in 1954, a guy by the name of Walter Lefevre, he was a political organizer on the far right, um. He criticized the Girl Scouts for their coverage of the United Nations. Um, and by 1954, United Nations support um, was increasingly um, grasped onto by the right as a symbol of misguided leftist thinking. And so what Lefevre and others were saying was that the United Nations, particularly with its support for sharing, um, and this is particularly true early on of the United Nations, that there was a hope that there would be a plan for international cooperation um, around atomic energy and atomic science. Um, some in the UN had thought that this would be a way of, of um, you know, deflating the crisis. Um, Others accused the United Nations of trying to form one world government and challenging the sovereignty of um, individual nations. Um, and so on the on the right, a lot of conservatives saw the United Nations as a threat to American patriotism and American sovereignty, that you couldn't give your loyalty to both, um, became increasingly the claim. And so in the nineteen um, early 1950s Girl Scout handbooks, There's an entire chapter where, I don't know, like two thirds of it is devoted to um, describing and understanding the United Nations. And as you mentioned, girls memorized parts of the United Nation um, Declaration of of Rights for United Nations programs. Um, And really in the late 40s, most schools had some kind of UN Day celebration um it was just part of the holidays that that kids participated in so come the increasing um uh mccarthyism you have le criticizing the girls handbook for all this united nations support and then in um the american legion in illinois came out with at their convention they uh, named girl scouts as a subversive organization um And so it was in response to both of these things that the Girl Scouts actually ended up taking out of their handbook any positive coverage of the United Nations. So they left in sort of the skeleton of what the U.N. was and they took out all of the, um, for example, there was a comparison comparing the U.N. declaration to the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights. Uh, And um, What in effect they were doing was taking out all of this um, aspirational content um, and just leaving sort of the bare bones that this institution exists. Um, And what was interesting to me um, and to a lot of scholars is that the Boy Scouts handbook, that's actually what it had. It had a diagram of the UN and that was it. There was like no commentary on really what its purpose was. I think this does a real disservice, obviously, to children. Um, I wouldn't say that youth organizations weren't political already, but it's a new layer of politicization um, that ended up um, removing what was really educational um, materials that girls could have debated. Um, They end up removing this entirely from the program um, as if it's too controversial for kids to actually um, engage with. And let's see, so the, the story ends, in fact, by the nineteen mid-1950s, 1955 or so, um, women and girls in Girl Scouts, um, and much of the mainstream media too, looks back on this and says, oh, that was a mistake, that um, people end up mainstream supporting Girl Scouts and their efforts to teach children about internationalism. Um, And so there's a couple of articles in the mainstream press about how Girl Scouts has done a disservice by rewriting its manual. Um, But by then, you know, the work is done. They don't add the UN back in, uh, but they do start, Girl Scouts does start participating more in federally supported internationalist programs, for example, um, Eisenhower's People to People program, this is a safer way, right, of doing what you've already been doing all along. Um, and in some ways, Eisenhower's People to People sort of co-ops what these youth organizations are already doing. Um, but that's another story. Um, but the the federal programs are a safer way for youth to participate, um, because nobody's going to say, oh, it's well, some of them would have, but for the most part, people aren't saying, "Oh, you can't do that." It's what Eisenhower and um, Kennedy are supporting. Um, youth organizations were pretty free at that time um, to support the the president across the aisle.
1: And I think one of the ironies of this, and this is probably my last question, but one of the ironies of this that I found was that even as these girls groups are being attacked as communists because they're too friendly with the UN or they believe in this idea of a one world, a multilateral kind of solution for global peace, they are, you show this really well throughout the book, they're time and time again reinforcing a benevolent and benign image of American power globally. So they're actually serving American foreign policy initiatives and, and desires and goals. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to that to make sure we get like this full round, this full, like kind of global significance of girls groups.
0: They are actually, um, supporting very much the same model that, um, the USIA or the United States Information Agency, part of the state department, um, promotes as, um, what image of America uh, American citizens should project abroad. And the um, image really is one of United States as a benevolent superpower, um, not interested in imperialism and spreading the capitalist economy, but very much interested in spreading democracy. Um, And again, all of these aspirational values of equality and um, participation in the political process. Um, And so when girls write to pen pals, for example, the Girl Scouts program is very particular about what they should write about and what they shouldn't write about. They're urged not to talk about race cars and all of the bigger, not race cars, but sports cars and the bigger and better and, um, and, um, luxury items that Americans have. They're really urged to talk about, you know, their youth organization, their church, their daily life, so that they're creating an image of the good American society abroad. Um, and they're they're urged to send abroad um, these um, care packages with the same idea that they'll share abroad a glimpse of the greatness of American life, but always with the caution not to go too overboard um, because they're trying to present America as a benevolent um, superpower. And, um, you know, in the interest of building Cold War allies, um, these girls are serving as kinds of ambassadors, um, projecting the American good life, but not in a way that is materialistic and off-putting. Um so it is interesting that the extreme right that begins to label Girl scouts in the y w c a as um um communist infiltrated they don't they don't seem to get this larger purpose um though Eisenhower certainly did in the people to people program um and their pen pal correspondence program that comes out of um eisenhower's people to people is is it identical in many ways to the Girl Scout program and the kinds of things Americans should write about. We should write about having an ice box, but not about having a sports car. You know, these kinds of, these kinds of things are um, ways to sell America, um, uh, to sell America abroad.
1: Right. But they very much have to retreat into this kind of protective cover of the government as kind of, saying if we're working for the government, we are patriotic. If we're working for the government, we're not subversive, right? Um, absolutely so absolutely you mentioned kind of at the end too that it's the campfire girls who ultimately are able to escape some of this some of this targeting by the far right because they do a number of things most importantly i think they reinforce traditional gender roles and you said that your next book is about the campfire girls so i would love if you could talk to us a little bit about that and like if that enriches this book that you've just written or what new directions it might take
0: yes um so the the book that i'm writing on the campfire girls um extends this discussion of what it means to be a girl and what it means to be a citizen Um, And continues to grapple with, um, you know, how an organization tries to create a civic identity that is uniquely feminine. Um, And at its core, Campfire thought that girl citizens should be both useful and beautiful. And so a lot of the book is teasing out what it means to be useful and what it means to be beautiful at any given time. Um, and so for example, in the post-war period, again, the idea of beauty and charm, um, was augmented by your tolerance. So beauty isn't necessarily always just, um, you know, about fashion and, and lipstick. Um, it's not always so surface. And so the way that these organizations talk about charm and personality is also part of how they see beauty, but, um, the the larger book looks at citizenship within the 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 the, the nation state and the the national context. Um, so what goes through both of these is that we're looking at a liberal discourse about inclusion. Um, campfire and Girl Scouts were always open quote to all girls, um, though the meaning of that was very limited um, um, at different times and in different places. Um, anyway, so you have this liberal discourse about inclusion. Um, but it's ultimately about creating wholesome girl citizens that will benefit the nation. And and so um, the the book is a uh, examination of how this plays out in different communities, um, including among disabled girls. Again, youth organizations are far ahead of most of America in terms of inclusion. Um, but inclusion of um, youth with disabilities is... Um, often, it it is often um, uh, within a ableist context um, that sees disabled youth as kind of outsider insiders. Um, They're brought in, but they're brought in because kids can give service to them. Um, So I I look at some of the dynamics then of what it means to have this kind of liberal, inclusive um, discourse um, but still a model of beauty and usefulness that is on a white Protestant, middle-class, able-bodied norm. Um, and so that's what the the book pursues. Um, and um, yes, it's um, under contract with um, University of Nebraska Press, probably uh, 2020. And now I've said it. <laughs> <laughs> so probably,
1: now you have to do it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> does it take uh
1: does it take us all the way from the beginning of the campfire girls up into the present, or is it also kind of a mid century project
0: It takes us from campfire's stated founding date of nineteen ten all the way through the early 1970s when campfire um, opened its doors to uh, boys and became co-ed uh, both campfire and Girl Scouts became um, declared for the women's movement in the 1970s and campfire declared for the women's movement by creating the equal partnership between boys and girls, um, and becoming a co-ed organization and Girl Scouts did so by declaring themselves for women, um, and girls by women and girls. And, um, um, Girl Scouts is the one that we still know today. So that's sort of where I end. Um, and a lot of the women that I interviewed saw that as a real turning point and kind of an end to an era as well. So, yeah, it goes 1910s through 1970s.
1: All right. Great. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. I really enjoyed reading this book and learning more about your scholarship.
0: Thank you. This was a wonderful opportunity. I appreciate it.